it's kind of mind boggling that we, we are still not talking about attachment network or attachments. We're still talking about attachment as a single caregiver child phenomenon, uh, but it's not. So you're listening to a podcast called Securely Attached, which means you've probably heard that we want our children to develop secure attachment styles. But how bad is it really if kids don't? And how do children who may have an insecure attachment relationship to a parent or caregiver fare in adulthood? My guest this week is a professor of clinical psychology at Long Island University and a senior clinical psychologist and supervisor at Williamsburg Therapy Group, Dr. Orr Dagan. Orr studies attachment, and as you'll hear in this episode, he's finding some rather interesting results in his research. So whether you've never heard about attachment theory before, or you're deep in the trenches of unpacking your own attachment style and working to repair it yourself, this episode will help remove some of the anxiety and fear that is so often perpetuated around attachment theory, and it's going to break down the science into simple and digestible nuggets so that it can help guide you in your daily parenting life. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, I'm super excited to welcome this guest on our podcast today. We have known each other for many years, and um, I'm just really happy. Oradagan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Sarah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm so it's great to see you. We we actually our paths first crossed when we worked at Mount Sinai Beth Israel together. And and now you are doing like incredible research on attachment. And I was so excited to that you agreed to come on the show and share some of the work that you're doing and what you are finding because it's it's definitely cutting edge and I'm excited to share some of these insights you're finding with with these parents that listen. Yes, and and you know it's 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 kind of funny. You and I started meeting uh, by talking about uh, potentially one would say a very different modality of uh, uh, of intervention that relies on on very different assumptions potentially uh, the DBT. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, it's just fun to see how things kind of uh, shape up with time and see that you and I somehow ended up, uh, or maybe we're always part of, of, of attachment thinking. So, uh, yeah. yes. It's funny. Yeah. For people who don't know, DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. And when I was, when Orr and I were working at the hospital together, I was running the DBT program, which I love DBT, but it's a very behavioral treatment. It's a very, mo- like it's a, it's um it follows a very specific structure right. and manualized treatment. And, you know, when we're talking about things like attachment theory, which is so hard to operationalize, we've figured out ways to do it. It's very well researched, actually. But when we talk about like relational and psychodynamic models of psychotherapy, it's a lot harder to measure things. And so there's less research on it. It's just, but it's, you know, I have a really, actually a really interesting episode that I did with um, Katie Lewis, who I went to grad school with, and she taught, we talked mm. all about like the difference between like evidence-based practices and what that really means and how we can redefine and kind of expand evidence-based practices to, to include, and they, and they do, mm. but like I think colloquially in our field, the implication is if it's evidence-based, we're just talking about behavioral Mm -hmm. Uh, interventions, Mm -hmm. cognitive or behavioral interventions, when in fact, we, you and I both deeply know that -hmm. relational and psychodynamic models of therapy are very evidence-based. It's just. Absolutely. Which is what we're going to talk about today. And, and maybe we'll touch upon it later, but especially attachment uh, theory and intervention, which lays itself so well uh, to interventions uh, and evidence-based trials, because it is reliant also on behavior and Maybe we'll touch on it, uh, but it really relies specifically parenting behavior, and, and I think we'll we'll talk about it a little bit later. Yeah. Well, I'm. Could you share a little bit about like how you got into this research that you do, and a little bit about like your path to this? 
Sure. I, I think this is one of those things that were always there in the back of my mind. It, it just took me a little bit of time to understand that it is and also to articulate what it is. Uh, I think all of us, I don't think, I know all of us are uh, having uh, attachment relationships or developing attachment relationships early on in life. Um, and, and, and for some of us, uh, those attachment relationships shape uh, a lot of our behaviors and feelings uh, throughout the lifespan. And um, I, I got first introduced to this by uh, Miriam and Howard Steele when uh, I was their PhD student at the New School for Social uh, uh, Research, uh, and they're, they're running an attachment lab. And I thought, well, you know, it's a cool theory, but, uh, and I'll probably take it to the intervention level, uh, and I'll be a clinician, and that's going to be the end of it, and I'll be happy. And I am happy with it, but there are lots of, uh, lots of stuff that I discovered as I went through it that are either misunderstood by me as well as by popular media or still need to be elaborated and clarified also for, uh, uh, for the scientific community. Um, so I th started thinking maybe, maybe we have some work to do here uh, above and beyond just take it and uh, use it with, uh, with our clients and patients. Um, and that's, I, that's basically what has started me going. Uh, specifically, um, the, the idea that um, secure attachment is thought of as really the, the thing that gets everything good in life going. And I just had something difficult in me. Maybe it's my Israeli nature uh, or, or otherwise that just couldn't take it in completely. Um, and, and I started really being interested in whether and how insecure attachment can also um, not necessarily be bad. Um, yeah. and, and some of the research that I'm doing is, is exactly on that. And I was like so excited by this because one, I think, and anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's been listening to my podcast previously might be doing like a double take. Like, wait, what? Attachment is not the basis <laughs> of everything wonderful in the world. That's what you say, Sarah. Like, that's like the whole thing. And I'm like, Yes and no. Like, and I think we're going to talk about some really important nuances about what is and what is not important when it comes to attachment. And I think that the, the fact you said, like, it's it's not that well understood by, certainly not by mainstream society, but not even by the academic society as well as we've sort of presumed right. to know. That's that, right. Like, but the results, and we're definitely going to talk about the impact, is that it makes people really sort of paranoid about attachment. And like, very highly pressured to like create this like perfect mm -hmm. environment for this perfect attachment, which is like one, not possible, but two, maybe not as important as we, as we think. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about, about uh, uh, the anxiety that parents may have uh, around uh, providing the, the perfect environment in order to develop secure attachment. And that really can be thought about as two things. Number one, um, uh, should it be so much uh, anxiety provoking? And number two, uh, how bad, quote unquote, things may be uh, if people end up being uh, insecurely attached. Um, and, and first, per, perhaps let, let's think about um, the context in which attachments are, are developed. I think uh, there may be some confusion about what attachment really is. I think uh, attachment normally, and, and Sarah, please jump in and, and share your experience uh, with understanding attachment from, from other people that you are seeing or, 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 or patients or families. Uh, attachment is thought of often as maybe uh, how much the child loves the parent, how much the parent loves the child, um, how warm you can feel around specific people. Um, and, and all of this are or maybe part of it, but really attachment is... Uh, developed at a very narrow set of experiences in life. And these set of experiences are in the context of being distressed. Early on in life, it can be uh, being ill or something is uh, painful to me, but also emotional, especially emotionally distressed. And so um, I think this is the one thing that I, I would want to clarify right off the bat, because uh, it's really anxiety-provoking to be a parent and think, wow, I have to do so many things for my baby to feel good in so many contexts. And in reality, if we are specifically talking about attachment, um, we're really narrowing down, narrowing it down to a very specific 
state, which is being under distress or under emotional need. Now, when we are getting to this context, um, another useful way to think about how potentially not to be distressed uh, as a parent is uh, to think about it as a probabilistic uh, 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 way that children are thinking about their parents. They don't think that a parent with time is going to be there 100% of the time. What they are thinking is, and they're doing it unconsciously and automatically, that they're most probably going to be there. And that's enough for children to develop what we call attachment security. Mm -hmm. um, so it's inevitable that parents are not going to be always there for their kids when they need them. But it does right. not mean that if you miss it here or there, your child is going to end up having uh, an insecure attachment. Yes. Um, but, mm -hmm. I think that that's so important. And we talk about that all the time on here, like the good enough parent, like Winnicott's model of the good enough parent and how it's like, we're going to, if we get it right a certain amount of the time, not all the time, that that's optimal. Um, but there's something right. else you said that I think is really important to really highlight, which is um, the way that we form attachments. I always, I often sort of describe if I'm going to distill attachment theory down to like its most elemental piece, I usually will say something along the lines of the theory states that human beings are hardwired from birth to form an, uh, to get proximity, gain proximity to the people in their lives who are going to keep them alive. That's mm -hmm. kind of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So in times of distress, in times of fear, in times of heightened threat, we want to be close to the people who are going to keep us alive. And we do that right. through creating these bonds, these emotional bonds, because we're very emotional animals. So mm -hmm. and, and, and it's this idea that if we expect that my I expect over time now, after I've created this sort of bond, that my parents going to reliably and consistently meet my needs when I'm in distress, which is a really, mm -hmm. I think that when I'm in distress is I think that point you're making, that's incredibly important. It's not, my mom always makes me happy or my dad always is there for every single, you know, right. moment where I, you know, it's not always about that. It's really when I'm scared, when I'm crying, when I'm hurt, when I'm sad, when I'm afraid, do I think this person is going to help me survive this moment? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, mm -hmm. most of the mm -hmm. time reliably. Right. And, and, and this, this experience, I mean, we have so much as parents, we have so, uh, so many opportunities to show <laughs> our kids that we're going to be there for them. Um, so when you're thinking about anxiety, um, well, we can potentially lessen this by understanding that. Um, yes. So that makes me think of a of something that you and I had been talking about when we were we we're sort of thinking about this episode because I don't know like I'm curious if you have similar experiences or but like I get a lot of parents who come to me and are like my child is so distressed when I leave right I there's a lot of separation anxiety and I think mm. sometimes separation, like the distress around separating, which is actually pretty developmentally appropriate, gets conflated or gets misunderstood as a sign of insecure attachment. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time trying to explain the nuance of that difference with parents that, and I'm curious, like what your take on that is, or if you have any ways mm -hmm. of helping people understand the difference. I can relate to that uh, a lot, both by uh, being a father to a three-year-old uh, daughter, but also uh, it reminds me what you are telling me. Uh, it reminds me of the first time that I was learning about attachment theory and how it looks like in the laboratory. And, and I saw a mom leaves and I saw a child running to the door, banging on the door and crying. Um, mm -hmm. And I said, well, that, that's an insecure attachment pattern. Cannot not it, that's, a, that's not a secure person, or it's not a secure individual or baby. Uh, and everybody in the room kind of looked at me as like, oh, okay, this is, this is a novice guy. And why that is? Well, because uh, attachment really is not necessarily around when the parent leaves and how much the child is distressed when the parent leaves. In fact, it's evolutionarily important for children to be distressed when parents are leaving. This is yes. a way for them to signal, we need you back. Um, mm -hmm. 
the question that uh, that we're asking as researchers, but also attachment is emphasizing as a theory, is what happens when the parent is back. Uh, yes. What happens to the child internally when potentially there is a opportunity to resolve the distress? Children who are securely attached can use the presence of the parent in order to become soothed quickly. Um, and uh, if you, they have that in them uh, enough times, if these opportunities come up enough times and parents are available and sensitive and attentive uh, enough times, then next time or where the child is growing up and going to school, for example, or daycare, and a, and a parent leaves, well, the, the children get, uh, carry a representation with them that the parent will be back and I will be able to be soothed, even if I'm a little bit distressed right now. Um, yes. So I think this is an important point because uh, children may cry. That's not a sign of anything negative. I think what we want to try to think about is how fast children can and how effectively children can be soothed once we as parents are back in the picture. Yes. And I think it's also important to note based on that child's individual ability to soothe themselves, right? So like there are individual differences between children that are not necessarily indicative of insecure attachment. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like mm -hmm. child who has a very sensitive nervous system who gets very distressed and potentially very dysregulated when their parent separates from them, which is still in that normal response. But if they get really dysregulated, when that parent comes back, even if that parent is able to soothe that child, and if that child does have a secure attachment to that parent, it's going to take that child longer to be soothed by that parent than a child whose nervous system is a little bit more robust and is able to like kind of snap back faster. So I think it's also very important because I get a lot of parents that are like, well, my child takes forever to calm back down when I see them, when I, you know, when we reunite. And it's not necessarily that that's your child is not securely attached to, it might also be a sign that their nervous system just takes a longer t like span of time to reset, but that you mm -hmm. are able to effectively soothe. And that what you said, that, that internal representation, that blueprint right. has been written. I believe my parent is going to come back. I believe my parent is going to be able to help me feel better. It could take a child two minutes to, for that parent to help them feel better. It could take a child... 30 minutes for them to, for that parent to help them feel better. And it could still result in that, that internalized belief that my parent is going to help me to feel better. So that's like a important, I think, distinction. Mm -hmm. Cause like in a lab, it's, you've got this like very controlled environment. Right. right. You're, you're raising a very important point, Sarah, which is, uh, to what degree temperament and genetics are part of it, right? Some children are, are simply harder to soothe. Uh, they're more irritable uh, and, and kind of less, less warm to the environment, and, and they may be harder to soothe even in the presence of the parent. And for that, I want to say, you know, um, maybe it's not a bad idea to think about um, differences of attachment within a person rather than comparing to other children. Um, yes. If you are a parent to a child, who may be harder to be soothed at the beginning, but with time, the child is being soothed a little bit quicker. Uh, yet it takes it long; it takes him or her longer than compared to other children. It doesn't mean number one that he or she has an insecure attachment. It also doesn't mean that it is bad. It just means that you, as a parent, are able to be there for the child better than if you were not. So, so I, I think. Uh, genetics, by the way, have little to do with attachment, uh, with attachment security or insecurity. Um, but there is a range within children that parents can really play with by being there or not being there. So yes. just a thought about this as well. Yes, I think that's so important. And I think also <clears throat> another myth or misconception that I think happens a lot around attachment theory is that like it's not always like this traumatic thing that happens that disrupts attachment mm -hmm. that like really it's this sort of chronic misattunements and right. and or on the flip side the the establishment of secure attachment is like you know this sort of consistent attunement um mm -hmm. 
And then that in turn, I want to talk about the script, like that, that script that people are internalizing. I think that's super important. Right. Let's get a little bit more into this because there are multiple elements to the secure base script or to to secure attachment that that I think we can think about as checking off uh, in in behavior. Uh, It's not only appearing there when one is needed. Uh, A secure base script can be thought of as really, generally speaking, as as having four elements, all in the context of I need mom or I need dad or I need a caregiver or I'm under distress. One um, is can, uh, can the parent be there for me, period? Uh, so when I'm distressed, um, I know that I'm, I'm going to run, for example, to, to, to mom. Number two, uh, I'm going to get an, some sort of instrumental care. If I have a boo-boo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looked at. Mom is going to look uh, and make sure that it's not bleeding. If it is bleeding, she's going to put a Band-Aid on it. Uh, the third element, which is the most important element, is the emotional care or the emotional soothing. Um, it's okay. Everything is okay. It might be bleeding right now, but it's not a, but it's not a life-threatening thing. Um, uh, you'll be fine. And then the fourth element is I'm feeling soothed as a child and I'm going back to do what I, what I was doing before. Um, so going back to your example, Sarah, about, about a, ch- a parent leaving because they need to leave. Sometimes mm-hmm. um, there is a distress, but once they are reappearing, there can always be a conversation that feels the other the other uh, elements. For example, I'm now soothing you. I know it was hard, but you know I'm always going to be here. Um, and with time, again, those representations that you were talking about, the, the secure based scripts, are going to with time be consolidated, and children are not necessarily need or will not necessarily need a parent to be there for them right away because they know that when they will be there, uh, they'll get soothed and be able to continue with their days. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that script, that secure based script, like I think mm-hmm. that that's a very big predictor of like wellness and well into adulthood. Right. And even for parents, like parents who, when they were children, were able to consolidate scripts that, you know, when I'm in distress, I expect that someone's going to help me do this, help me through this, help me feel better, um, and that eventually mm-hmm. I will feel okay again. When we hold those scripts as adults, as parents, it gets sort of past, it, it shows up in our ability to parent our child in a way that passes along this sort of sense of security. All right. This is, this is something that um, uh, we think about that contributes to the intergenerational transmission of attachment security or, or insecurity. There is something that with time, uh, something about our relationship with our parent that with time get consolidated, uh, specifically, as you, as, you, as you mentioned, secure-based script gets consolidated and become an unconscious way through which we are there for our children. Um, and um, this is definitely associated with parenting. Uh, it's still unclear to what degree it's somewhat associated, but to what degree it's associated with children's uh, ability to be secure attached to their parents, but it's definitely associated with how parents can parent and be sensitive to their children. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy if you don't have this script to be there for a child because you are automatically not necessarily knowing how to do that. So uh, it's something that you need to learn. Um, uh, that brings us a little bit of, uh, to, to the realm of therapy for parents as well and how much important it is to invest uh, in learning this script. Because once you learn it, it's kind of hard to unsee it. Right. And the reality is, is not all parents are securely attached or have that sort of had that historical secure attachment with their own parents. I have a lot of Mm -hmm. parents who I work with that are trying to break cycles of intergenerational trauma and trying to change the script or create a script that's different in their children that was from what they originally kind of imprinted, which might have been like, nobody's going to be here for me when Mm -hmm. I'm in distress, or I'm not sure which parent I'm going to get when I'm in distress. Is it going to be the the part of Mm -hmm. my parent that is really, really 
sort of terrified by my distress and is really kind of smothering? Is it the part of my parent that's going to be really dismissive and a or angry or volatile at my distress? And so if, if we as parents have internalized a more insecure, secure base, uh, insecure script, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have mm-hmm. that secure base script. I think what I'm hearing you say is then if we want to parent with a new script, we have to learn it. And the best way to learn that is through reparenting ourselves and going through that process of actually getting perhaps therapeutic support or building up new scripts, you know, really doing that conscious work of saying, I have to figure out how to feel safe so that I can communicate that to my kid. Exactly. And you said two things that I think are important. Number one is learning the script. And number two is feeling the script, right? If, if you give a parent just a script, I, I doubt that uh, with time, they'll just be able to internalize and it and act by it. They need to start feel what it means to be in the world uh, and, and feel secure enough to go to someone that can also soothe them. Um, and this is something that in, in the therapeutic world is called corrective emotional experiences. And it's not easy to have if this, by, by and large, has, if you didn't have those experiences, if you hadn't had those experiences. Um, and so I think, I think uh, you know, without advocating too much for it, but investing in one's own therapy is a long-term investment because it really influences your ability to parent a child that may feel better later on. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I say advocate, advocate all the way because or advocate <laughs> way because I, I do think, I mean, sure, you and I were biased. We're psychologists. We, we want mm-hmm. people to be in therapy. But I don't think it's, I think it's because we know that we, we've seen what it can do, right. not just for our patients, but for their children. Right. It's, uh, it, it's funny how sometimes uh, when I see parents, they're thinking so uh, thoroughly about where to invest the money in terms of um, which school to go, or what extracurricular activities to go. Um, and they are very, uh, uh, they think twice before going to a long-term uh, therapy. But I think really, if we think about it from an attachment point of view and how it can influence parenting, this may be a really good investment of time, not only financial investment. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, literally, that's basically what I've based my entire career on is helping parents become really, truly healthy so that they can mm-hmm. raise healthy children, right? Like, I don't, I see parents in my practice. I don't, I treat kids but almost exclusively mm-hmm. work with parents. And so mm-hmm. the reality mm-hmm. is, is because I deeply believe that this family system is an entire interconnected unit. And so if I treat the parents and I help the parents feel safe and I help the parents build this sense of security internally, they will be more equipped to create secure attachments with their own children. And it's just going to have this like, domino effect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and I, I i think one thing also to remember is that um i think you touched upon it before is what 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 happens when we fail to to be that secure base for our children right i mean to, what, what are the consequences of that and i i think the uh, the general idea is that it's going to be disastrous Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, don't get me wrong. I do think that it's always preferable to be securely attached. Uh, also, research-wise, I mean, we know that it confers uh, better socio-emotional um, uh, health on, on many categories uh, throughout the lifespan. But uh, it's not all that bad all the time. Um, yeah. I think uh, attachment is something that is very important to think about as an adaptive uh, behavior. Uh, insecure attachment is not a lack of attachment. It's simply a second best strategy. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it in that way, uh, and again, you mentioned before about being anxious. Um, I, I totally, and, I, and, and we will talk more about uh, how non-optimal it may be to be insecurely attached, but it's not predicting uh, bad outcomes all the time. In fact, 
we know that sometimes if in a, in a specific uh, age range, for example, adolescence and adult, we know that those who are insecurely uh, attached in a, in a dismissing subtype, I think sometimes it's uh, referred to as avoidant subtypes, those who tend to um, not necessarily go to people uh, or even if they are close to them when they are in need, those who ne don't necessarily tend to share much, they keep to themselves, they don't tend to report uh, much depression and anxiety compared to securely attached children. Um, mm. In other words, is it all that bad to be insecurely uh, attached at adolescent and adulthood? One, one subtype of it. Um, right. And, there, let's explain the two subtypes quickly because I think there's, yeah, there's yeah. It's, it's confusing, right? There's a lot of different types of ways of describing it. So you mm -hmm. have insecure, you have secure attachment, and then there's two different types of insecure attachment. There's a right, fourth, but we don't really get into disorganized as much. But right, I, I think I think the, the easiest and simplest way to think about it, and more uh, in a way that one can think about it uh, about in different contexts, would be kind of uh, hyperactivating and deactivating uh, attachment patterns. Hyperactivating. Uh, attachment is referred to uh, excessive proximity-seeking behaviors at times of need. Excessive mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to simply uh, find someone and be soothed. Excessive meaning those uh, adults or, or adolescents or children as well that uh, would not be soothed by the uh, proximity to a caregiver or proximity to a friend or proximity to someone they trust. They would keep uh, signaling, I need help, even in the presence of someone who they trust. Um, and then there is the deactivating attachment. Those who rarely show any signs of proximity. They keep to themselves. They don't ask for help. Even if they are offered, they reject it. And I think thinking about those two types can help us understand a little bit attachment on the continuum rather mm -hmm. than categories, right? Some, some of us are a little bit more hyperactivating and seek proximity more excessively. Those of us who text everyone when we, uh, when we need help, even those who we don't feel necessarily that close to. And also on uh, the other side of the continuum, we have the deactivating uh, attachment patterns. Um, so this is kind of a general understanding of attachment on the continuum. Yes, I love that. That's a really helpful mm -hmm. way to visualize it, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And those who are deactivating on that continuum, those who don't tend to necessarily seek help all that much in adolescence and adulthood, also don't uh, tend to report more anxiety and depressive symptoms compared to the securely attached individuals. Of course, the question is why? And we're not quite sure they may also be under-reporting. One of the ways we think about it is maybe that they don't uh, tell you as a researcher, hey, are we are depressed or anxious because this is another uh, person who we don't want to share our feelings with. But it can mm -hmm. also be the case that by the time they reach adolescence and adulthood, they're so used to being insecure or deactivating in their attachment needs. They're so used to take care of themselves, quote unquote, um, that they're simply uh, not in touch with those feelings, even if they have them, and they really are managing them quite okay. Right. So there's not distress around the unmet need. There's like a comfortableness with the exactly. unmet need. Exactly. It may be the case. It's, it's still kind of a black box for us. But if you look at, at only on the level of symptoms, they simply don't report as much. Now, mm -hmm. if you look at the hyperactivating adolescents and adults, they report excessively high symptoms. Again, it might be overreporting, but it also might be that they are very much uh, not only in tune with how much distressed and anxious they are, but really they simply may feel way less uh, secure and way more alone in this world because no matter how much they seek support, nobody is going to be there for them. At least this is their experience, even right. in the presence of others. Right. Um, and that's something really important is like, it's like, it's, I think when you have that kind of anxious, insecure attachment, mm -hmm. it's like there's holes in the bucket. And so you can fill the bucket, but it doesn't ever feel full. And it versus nobody is filling my bucket actually. And mm -hmm. if they did, it would be full because there's it's a solid it's a solid bucket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the work with it with anxious attachment 
is helping those individuals start to plug the holes of their bucket, start to feel like their bucket is actually sturdy enough to receive help in a way that fills them up and is enough. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's another episode, a whole nother episode on right. how we treat that. But like, right. I think that that's a really beautiful way of describing this so that one is destigmatizing, but two helps parents realize, okay, you know, I, even if I can't get this right enough of the time to help my child be securely attached, mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. dooming them necessarily to a life of pain and suffering. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very helpful, especially for parents who maybe themselves are children of chaotic lives and traumatic experiences or chronic misattunement from their parents, where they really weren't given the opportunity to develop secure attachments. They want to create an environment for their children where they're set up for their best chance. But they themselves struggle sometimes with being able to meet every one of their children's needs. Maybe they're too depressed sometimes to meet their child's needs, or maybe they're too anxious, or maybe they're too Mm -hmm. reactive. And even if they're working on it, it's still really hard um, to know that like, Mm-hmm. One, attachment style is not necessarily fixed. We can we can change it through therapeutic interventions. Absolutely. And also, even in situations where things don't quite go the way we would like them to, it's not necessarily the only option is, is bad and pain. And more than that, um, which brings me to another, another thing that I think is important to mention, I, we talk about attachment. Um, Attachment to whom? Mm-hmm. Uh, often case is the time. Oftentimes is the case that people think about attachment to moms for the most part. Uh, some of us also think, well, dads too, but not many of us think about moms and dads and potentially other caregivers that we know children develop attachment to uh, independently from one another, but also simultaneously. Um, and I think for the most part of uh, for the most part of the history of attachment theory and research, this has been the way that attachment was conceptualized. Are you securely mm-hmm. attached or insecurely attached, or have attachment disorganization, for that matter, with your mom, and maybe for some rare researchers with your dad? But I think the combination of both are known today to be important to children's mental health. I'll give an example. Uh, we have talked about attachment security to moms as predicting, for example, depression and anxiety in childhood. Um, uh, but what happened when you insert attachment security or insecurity to dads at the same time to the equation? What happens when you start thinking children are either secure, secure to both parents or secure to mom and insecure to dad or insecure to mom and secure to dad or maybe insecure to both parents? That's a different way of thinking about attachment. Mm-hmm. And we see that it does, it, it's very important for children uh, on that level to be securely attached to both parents. Because once you are introducing insecure attachment to the other parent, you start, th- you start seeing more uh, depression and anxiety symptoms. You start seeing even uh, less optimal language competence and mastery skills. I mean, it, it, it's, it's starting to be different. So you're talking about, uh, Sarah, about sometimes I'm depressed, sometimes I'm sick, sometimes I'm not well, I'm not there for my kid. Um, you do want to make sure, or at least try to think, both as a clinician, but also as a parent, what's going on with the other parent when I'm down, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Uh, those who are normally worse off are those who are insecurely attached to both parents. And put yourself right. in, the, in, in, in the, in the, in the, point of view of the of the kid that does not believe that any of the parents are going to be there for him or her at times of need compared to those who believe that okay mom is sick but i know that when dad comes home later tonight it's going to be okay so right. just just so maybe maybe something to think about uh, in terms of uh, the point of view of the child it's not only about a single caregiver it's about multiple caregivers or attachment networks uh, rather right. than a single attachment. No, I think that's really important. I think we do know, I, I think it's important to point out we're talking about 
a really wide range of, you know, mm-hmm. we're not talking about good and bad. We're talking about if you could stretch that good and bad all the way out into a spectrum and say there's range here, there's there's optimal and there's suboptimal, but there's a lot in between. Because I think I get a lot of parents who are like, my child is, you know, I parent so differently from my partner. And I'm very worried that the way that my partner is parenting my child is going to damage their attachment security and it's all going to be mm-hmm. on me. And I will often say to them, we know from the research that the protective factor of a secure attachment can be present if there's simply one attachment, one secure mm-hmm. attachment relationship mm-hmm. in a child's life. But obviously, there's nuance to that. And so, yeah, it's really interesting to think about this idea that, well, optimally, we want our children to be have opportunities to have secure attachments with multiple simultaneous secure base figures, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is another thing that I think also comes up with like having caregivers and care providers and going to daycare and, and having extended family also be part of your child's secure base network. You know, that's a good thing. We want our children to form these attachments to their teachers and to their babysitters and to their grandparents. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's the more secure attachment schemas you have, the more yeah. secure base scripts you have, the safer mm-hmm. you're going to feel in the world. There's kind of a, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling that we, we are still not talking about attachment network or attachments. Yes. We're still talking yes. about attachment in the, in, in, as a single caregiver child phenomenon, uh, but right. it's not. That makes me think of a metaphor I often used to describe the family system as like a spider web. Like we're all connected. And if you pull one thread, the whole thing moves. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you can't just isolate a mother-child attachment within a family system. Because if you, you know, there are other factors, like any other piece, it's going to, if you, if you wiggle that or pull on that thread, everything moves. So like you were saying, like if there's a, Absolutely. if there's an attachment relationship with a care, with one caregiver, that's really, really insecure, it is going to affect the security of the attachment with the caregiver who might be more, more secure because it's, it's pulling on that, mm-hmm. right? It bleeds into that a little bit. Yes. Uh, I should say uh, that uh, there is somewhat of a weak correlation between the, uh, how securely attached children are to mothers and how they are to fathers, uh, but it's weak. In other words, we have quite a bit of children who are securely attached to one parent but insecurely attached to another, um, and that I think that's actually not a, a bad thing because it gives hope to to us thinking as parents. You know, um, children children can do this independent with each parent. Uh, yes. Of course, there is family environment that also influences how how many secure attachment they're going to be. Uh, but if you're insecurely yeah. attached to one parent, it's not the end of the story, just the beginning of the story. Well, now we have other attachment relationships that we can work on as well. Right. So it's like, you know, it's complicated. If there is no one right way to think of it, like, you know, I feel like some of the things we're saying, I might even feel almost contradictory, but in reality, we're saying it's really nuanced. It's really complicated. That's why this research is so important because what you're trying to do is isolate all these variables so you can actually look at them all. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of variables. I think this is the tightrope that we are all walking on, uh, especially those of us who are doing research. Because on the one hand, you know, I really, and you know, if a, if a scientist listened to our podcast, they, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna call you right now. And this is what I'm about to say. I mean, we don't want to look when we relay the information to the to, to, to lay population, to people who are interested in this, to clinicians. You don't want to lean too heavily on the scientific domain because you'll get lost. Plus, there's so many empirical evidence, but sometimes you got to give some weight to the theory itself uh, and not get lost in all this, because the theory, because the, because the scientific evidence is really confusing. Um, you have to make sense of it, but sometimes you also want to stick to the theory and just measure it again or differently. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, you don't want to fall on the other side of the tightrope. You don't want to completely simplify things, as as we started talking about some thirty or forty minutes ago, and say secure attachment is really 
the end all be all. And if you're not, then things are going to be bad. And then I, I think, I think it's a tightrope to walk on for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so like, I guess with that, I wonder if there's any, if there's a, if, if you wanted parents to walk away from this episode, feeling something or understanding something, what would you hope the takeaway is? Well, I, I think, uh, a couple of things. Number one, um, if you as a parent feel that something is not completely uh, right in the way that your child feels in the world when you are around them, uh, it doesn't have to be well articulated, but it can be felt. And I trust that people can feel that. Um, seek therapy, even for a short term, to articulate what it is. If it end up being something about your ability to be there for the child in an ultimate way to provide the children with secure attachment, um, you're, you're doing something very important for yourself and the child. Um, it may end up not being that, in which case it's also important to articulate what it is. But I, I, I want parents, I ideally want parents uh, to be sensitive to their ability to be there for the children at times of need. Yes. That's so important. And I think as parents, sometimes it's hard to give ourselves permission to like, kind of like you were saying, like we'll spend all sorts of money on extracurriculars and tutors and stuff for our children, but we don't do it for ourselves when in fact doing this work for ourselves is for our children. It's just as beneficial to them as it is to us. Well put, Sarah. I like that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, this was so, I mean, I think it's so wonderful talking to you and it's nice to hear, like, it's nice to hear the science side of it because I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, I mean, I'm plugged into that, but it's hard to translate it to parents. I think our field in general struggles very much translating this research to, you know, the general population. There's a lot of contradictions. There's a lot of misunderstandings about it. And and then those misunderstandings, it's like it becomes, you know, telephone, the game of telephone, and it gets overly distorted and overly distorted the more, the more like social media and people who don't totally fully understand it start to share more about it or it gets kind yeah. of, dis- like it really becomes quite distorted and so mm-hmm. I think, you know, we have a responsibility as people who are who are directly connected to this research to start to get the word out more accurately to parents, which I think mm-hmm. is amazing that you're doing this, this research and that you came on here to help us understand it better. Yeah. And, I, you know, Sarah, actually, I'm, I'm curious, do you feel that uh, that uh, parents who come to you, to you for help are asking for attachment um, related help? Or is it something that you are the one who is kind of promoting this in front of them? It's interesting. I would say it's it's almost half and half. And a lot of times, you know, I get a lot of parents who come to me who don't understand that this is the problem, that this is this is where we can enter into a solution. Like, hey, let's actually, some of the things that you are focusing on might be inadvertently creating more anxiety in your child's attachment and less sense of safety and security. And so mm-hmm, we can, mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of room to grow because we can really help them recalibrate that relatively easily if they're open. If usually if they're mm-hmm. coming to me, they're open to something. Um, but then I also, and I think this is the part of, you know, maybe the benefit of social media and some of the more, the ways that our society has has created more outlets to main to to share information about attachment in a more mainstream way with parents that they're becoming educated about this they mm. are learning about this albeit sometimes slightly inaccurately and so then mm. they come to me having a lot of anxiety that they're doing something very damaging to their child's attachment uh and then the work is also a little bit about just helping them root their fears in actual reality, try to help them say, well, let's, let's look at the facts and let's actually understand what it is that you are interpreting here and, and just check and see if this is actually accurate. And then from there, we can usually find some room to come closer to like more accurate attunement of the things that matter. So like I do a lot of work 
helping parents kind of tune out the noise that's making them mm-hmm. feel like they're doing a bad job. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And to start to know, okay, well, what do I, what are the real markers? Like what we're talking about, what are the things that I actually have to do to create secure attachment in my child? It's mm-hmm. less than we think, mm-hmm. which is relieving to many parents. Um, yeah, but to be, yeah. to do it effectively. Uh, it's, it's interesting you're saying that, that it's, it's basically changing a little bit the perspective of, of parents that come with a specific problem and telling them, well, you know, there, there, might, there might be ways to, to be there for your child that, that would make them feel better around you. I, I, I get a sense also that um, uh, I, uh, parents that I do talk to uh, come with a, prob- a concrete problem they believe the child has. Uh, and I think the shifting of perspective, maybe it's not necessarily only the problem, it's who's next to the child and who's supporting the child when dealing with the problem. I think this is an important uh, shift of uh, perspective that when parents see that, I think it's relatively easy to, uh, to actually start changing your behavior towards uh, making your children feel better. Um, yes. So I, I like how you put it, and I am very much aligned with how you see it. Yes. And, and in those situations, and that is why in my practice, we, I don't, can't think of a single case that we treat where we see the child in, in isolation for their quote problem, right? Like mm-hmm. even if that is what we are treating, we always bring the parents into that treatment because children do not live in a vacuum. They are in, in extricably intertwined with the family system. Absolutely. So we, you know, I, I very much respect clinicians that work exclusively with kids, but in my practice, we don't do that. We always integrate the parents, even if it's very clear that we're treating a symptom in a child because of exactly what you're saying. Like we need to know who's next to the child when they're struggling with this and how we can support Mm -hmm. that person to support the child. It's, it's just, it's just not, we can't reduce it down to symptoms. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm 100% with you on this, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. And you, so if people want to learn more about the research that you're doing or the therapy that you provide, like how can people get in touch with you? Well, they, uh, they can uh, go to uh, ordagan.com and then you can download whatever research. You can see all kinds of videos. You can see presentations and you can also get in touch with me through the, uh, through the website. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. It's so interesting. I, we could nerd out on this for hours. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Sarah, for inviting me. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in additional resources for parenting support, head over to my website, drsarahbren.com. There, you'll find free guides to help you with everything from planning your postpartum to fostering resilience in your child and creating a successful toddler bedtime routine. You can find all that and more at drsarahbren.com. Until next Tuesday, don't be a stranger.